Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is James Sabri. James is the global head of pharma partnering for Roche. He's based in Basel, Switzerland. Way back when, James did his PhD in neuroscience at UCSF and spent the bulk of his career in biotech in California. After leading a couple of startups, he joined Genentech in 2010 as vice president of partnering. It was a pivotal time in the company's history as it was being integrated into Roche. A lot has changed in the biotech sector over the past decade, and James has been in a position to see it all up close at one of the industry's leading companies. That includes everything from gene therapy to gene editing to cell therapy to targeted RNA medicines to new modalities of small molecules. We talked in this episode about how things have changed over the years at Genentech and Roche, how James likes to approach the business development game, and what some of those scientific megatrends are that make him optimistic about biotech over the next 20 years. Now, before we dive in, if you like this podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Timmerman Report. This is where you'll get my in-depth coverage of startups, biotech trends, and sharp commentary from a diverse cast of contributing writers. You can purchase an individual subscription for a year or join a group at a discounted rate. Go to TimmermanReport.com for more information. Now, please join me and James Sabri on The Long Run. James Sabri, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be with you. So, you know, James, uh, thinking about this uh, interview, I, I, it takes me back to all the meetings that you and I have had at the J.P. Morgan conference over the years, uh, you know, where you've usually been um, staked out in one of these boutique hotels. I don't remember the name of it, actually, but um, it was it was a cool place. And on the way in or out, I would always bump into somebody in the hall or the elevator and have, you know, spontaneous interactions with some cool scientist or entrepreneur. And, and that is really one of the things that I look forward to you know, next January or whenever we re- reconvene in person. Um, do you, what do you think when you think about um, going back to normal or some semblance of it is is that something you look forward to or or what are some things that you might do differently well it, you know it's uh it's interesting you mentioned jp morgan because that that meeting has got so much uh commentary i'd say from the industry in general but maybe a couple of things firstly as you point out luke it's a small industry biotech still is uh, a small industry where you can know uh, a large percentage of the entrepreneurs, of the investors, uh, of the people in the pharmaceutical industry, and the ecosystem between these three broad groups of in, uh, of investors that provide essential capital, uh, biotechnology entrepreneurs who provide these highly focused, very nimble, uh, innovative companies that, by the way, now are producing most of the healthcare innovation on the pharmaceutical side. And then the pharmaceutical people who are the, the 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 big end game for almost all of this, right? Either through acquisition or collaboration and eventually manufacturing and marketing and selling. Um, all that has to work. And it's such a small industry that when we all get together, as we as we do at JP Morgan or to some extent at Bio or other meetings, um, these chance interactions become important, and it, you, you can't have these chance interactions over Zoom. Well, and it's so about I, fostering like trust and relationships over time too. I mean, that's correct. So when I think about those meetings that you and I have had, I mean, most of it it was it wasn't like uh, I mean that any of us was anybody was trying to get something out of it. Like, like I wasn't necessarily trying to get a story out of you at that meeting. And I'm not sure what you were trying to get out of me. Right. I mean, it, we were just getting to know each other and exactly, knowing that exactly. we, we had common interests in science and business and, you know, we'll, we'll foster a relationship over time and see where it goes. And that trust is something that becomes the, the cornerstone of, of any business development and alliance management relationship that that I that I'm myself and the group are now involved with at Roche and Genentech is if you know someone for a period of time, either because you've met them at these meetings or frankly because they've worked with you and they've now gone on uh, and 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 gone to a new company or into a biotech com- company or into venture capital, 
or, or into the public uh, finance world w- in healthcare, uh, the fact that you know them means that the discussion can be accelerated that much faster and creative ideas can spurn from that. And I do believe, and, 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 you, and you've been part of this with some of the things you've done, is that you can you can do things in a way that perhaps haven't been done before. And the healthcare sector really benefits from these kinds of relationships. This is not a simply transactional job that we have. It's, it's a job that has a highly social component to it. And I think most people uh, are truly interested in, in really helping uh, the patient and in helping the healthcare sector. And that, that comes up in all these kinds of interactions. Yep. Yep. Well said. Okay. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on your background. Like I sometimes do in this show, uh, cause there's a lot of science and business to cover, but like, you, you know, you're born and raised in Canada. You spent your whole career on the West coast. Uh, I guess you're a, a dual citizen. That's correct. Yeah. I grew up in Toronto. Um, and then, uh, after medical school in Canada, moved down to Boston for more medical training and then uh, made the move out to California where I did a PhD at UCSF in, in the biochemistry department, a postdoc at Stanford in that biochemistry department, and then and then left academia to, to start Cytokinetics. It was the first company that I was involved with and was a founder of, and ran that company for uh, for a decade or so, and then moved past another startup and eventually to Genentech. Uh, and that was about, I want to say, 12 years ago. Um, and then uh, two years ago, uh, took a more global role within the Roche Genentech environment by com- when they combined the two partnering groups between yep. Genentech and Roche. And okay. So that's that's been my career. So MD-PhD, who's found his way into business development. We'll, we'll get to that part. I'm just always a little jealous of the dual citizens with the Canadian connection <laughs> because Canada's, I just got a lot of friends there. And well, you like of, it because cool. it's got lots of mountains, I think. That too, that too. But <laughs> but now you're spending most of your time in Basel. They, they got mountains there too. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, okay, so you had that experience as an entrepreneur, Cytokinetics and another company. You come to Genentech in 2010. Now, um, I think this is where things start to get interesting and, and lead us up to what, what you're seeing now. Um, could you describe, like, what was it that excited you about taking the job then? And maybe what turned out to be, like, different than what you might have expected or surprising? Well, in 2010, for those of you that were around back then, remember, it was a, it was a, a bit of a rough time economically. The world was still suffering from the, um, the fallout of, of the recession that occurred in 2008 and 2009 and the, you know, with the failing of Lehman Brothers and other banks. Um, the amount of capital in the biotech sector wasn't that large. It rotated out of biotech. Um, um, Genentech had uh, been privatized in its final uh, event with Roche and had been uh, fully taken over by Roche in 2000, March 2009. And uh, I came, you know, a few, about eight months after that um, into a and, and the way that I got there was I just got a phone call from Art Levison and said, you know, would you like to run partnering? And I pretty well accepted on the spot because I knew of Genentech's scientific history and a number of the scientists were there. Uh, and and then I so at that point, I came into the partnering group to run the partnering group for Genentech partnering. And it was it was still a group that was separate from the Basel based group, even though we were fully owned by Roche at the time. Um, but it began a, a series of of growth within business development uh, to where we are now. Um, I guess the, the one thing I, I would say just by way of commentary is I remember Art peeked his, his head in one point in my office and said, uh, you're still here, uh, as though he expected me only to be at the company for a few years. And I said, you know, Art, I, I do, I'm actually really enjoying this. It feels like a startup, but instead of having two projects, it has 300 projects. But, it, but Genentech did and still does feel like an entrepreneurial, nimble biotech company, even though it's got 15,000 employees. And that's that's what attracted me to it. And that combined with eventually the the scale and the beauty of what Roche is as a pharmaceutical company is what's kept me at it for all these years. Well, it's interesting you mentioned a couple a couple big things going on at that time. I mean, there was the, the Roche acquisition of Genentech. So, I mean, I remember this. I'm old enough to remember this. Yeah. And there was a lot of um, anxiety or angst about uh, what that might mean for the culture, the legendary science culture of Genentech, and, you know, just becoming bigger. And, and would it continue to be as vibrant and, and productive and creative uh, as it was? So there was, there was all that stuff, I guess, internally 
to, to think about and deal with. And then there was that external environment, that, that great recession, where there were all these interesting biotech startups that were around, but they were all stressed and starved for cash and wondering if they'd ever raise their next venture around. So like you come into this dynamic in partnering, what, what did it actually, I mean, and Genentech, you know, had that pride of, of ownership, I think, like it wasn't necessarily known for building itself through acquisitions and licensing deals. There was a lot of homegrown science. So like, how did you think about like bridging, you know, these two worlds at that time? Well, it, it's interesting you mentioned that. Genentech uh, at the time, uh, although you're absolutely right, um, was rightly so very proud of its internal drug discovery and development capabilities, had started to open up to uh, the idea that there were great opportunities outside of Genentech. And this is this really matured over the first four or five years I was there, um, not only with mindset shifts within the executives that were there, but also, um, frankly, with the opportunities that were happening in biotech. Because although you, although the capital wasn't there, what was starting to happen in 2010, 2012 was the beginning of a technological phase. So we often think of biotech as having uh, it, these phases of capital inflows and outflows. Um, and during the capital inflows, the public markets would open up. And then we always used to talk about the shutting down of the window that would occur about six months after the inflow would start and then the capital would flow out for a while. And those cycles were often uh, uncorrelated with technological cycles, whereby there would be times of either technological true innovation, uh, followed by areas of sort of almost consolidation and maturation of the technology. The amazing thing about where we are right now is that both these phases are in cycle. The technological phase, which kind of began back then in the 2012 timeframe, um, has really driven novel modalities for therapy, whether it be gene therapy, cell therapy, more sophisticated ways of thinking about both large and small molecules. In other words, not just bivalent antibodies or small molecules that bind to the active site of enzymes, but all sorts of variations on that theme. Those things have all come into play technologically since then. And starting around 2014, 2015, the capital started to flow, and boy, did it flow. And yeah. last year, for instance, was a fantastic year for capital inflow. So now we have this unprecedented, I mean, literally, this has never happened in this industry before, where we have this tremendous technological uh, excitement going on at the same time that there's now capital for these biotech companies to truly build innovation. And for someone sitting at Roche and Genentech in business development, the, the environment only got more and more interesting. And so... Genentech being scientifically driven at the time started to realize that they'll go where the science is. And that has continued uh, ever since then. Now, I, I think I totally agree. I think if it was almost like a Cambrian explosion that's occurred yes, in biotech yes. in that decade of the 2010s. I mean, I think the historians are going to look back and say a, a Cambrian explosion of science and technology occurred in the 2010s and, and opened up enormous vistas for cell therapy, gene therapy, um, you know, advanced biologics, targeted small molecules, everything. And it's amazing. It is amazing. I just want to say that it also means it, it calls all of us, all of us in biotech and in pharma to think about uh, how can we truly build, by build, I mean, discover, develop, and eventually manufacture and sell how can we truly build pioneering medicines? What, what is the nature of that medicine? If we limit ourselves to the standard biologic of a bivalent monoclonal antibody or a small molecule that binds the active site of an enzyme, we will be limiting uh, the types of pioneering medicines that we could proffer to the healthcare system. And so the exciting thing, I get excited about these partly because they're new, but mainly because the newness itself builds in more effective medicines, uh, including things like gene and cell therapy, which we're still just getting our feet wet on. Okay, can you just describe the, the picture for me at Genentech partnering at the time? Like how, how big of a team did you have when you took that job and, and how much of the pipeline came from external sources? So when I got there, the team was small. We had somewhere around 15 to 20 people. Uh, and 
the the mandate of the team was to scour the whole planet. I mean, we we're, we looked all over the world, even though we were based in in uh, California. Um, look to scour the whole planet for cool projects, technologies, and product deals to do that would come into uh, the Genentech Research and Development Group, which was a separate group from the group that that sits in Basel. Um, there was a I had a there were I had a, a a colleague who did exactly the same thing for the scientists uh, at Roche in Switzerland, and so we had these two groups that worked. It, very much in a in a coordinated and communicative fashion. We didn't want to step on each other's toes. Each other's toes. We didn't really want to have two comp two two arms of the same company going into the same biotech company, saying partner with us, partner with us. Yeah, you don't so, want to compete against your own co- company. Right. <laughs> That's right. And and we came close sometimes, but we we created a a collaborative model that allowed us to coexist very effectively. Obviously, that got resolved. If you want. Uh, two years ago, when the, the group became one, well, but at the why, time, why did you keep, why did you keep it separate at that time? Well, at that time, uh, the concerns that the whole company had was really maintaining independence uh, of the Genentech Research and Development Group from the group in Switzerland. This is something that Severin Schwann, the CEO of Roche, um, really pioneered and has been an advocate of, and he's been spot on on this. Um, this is one thing that I think Roche does extremely well is to uh, allow companies that it acquires to maintain a certain amount of independence from the central company that is based in Switzerland. We've seen this with Genentech and we're seeing it now with Spark, which we purchased uh, a year or so ago. Okay, so um, that attitude about the independence of R&D, that extended to business development as well. That, that recognition it, it, that, you, that you would work hand in glove with those people, that group. It did. And it's interesting you mentioned that the reason that business development was also part of that was that there was a very prescient view uh, of the executives in California and in Basel at the time that business development really was part of R&D. I reported in to the head of research and development at Genentech at the time, not into commercial or into finance or into some other part of the operations, which is was common in other companies, but actually into R&D. And that also fostered another element that we've continued with, and that is the embedding of the business development professional within the R&D structure. So we really become part of the team that builds the R&D strategy. The, the thing that we do, of course, is we look from the outside world of things to bring in, but the things we bring in have to curate beautifully with what's already there. And that's the advantage of having a business development group that is not only scientifically literate, but also one that is totally embedded within R&D, which is the way it's been since. So a lot of the meetings that you would have, uh, Richard Scheller, Mike Varney, all these guys, I mean, you're you're having a lot of back and forth. Like they're not, you know, in some other time zone or, or you know, some other building, maybe they're in another building, but there's a closeness the, there. A, a mind meld? Uh, definitely a mind meld. I reported both to Richard and to Mike and uh, when I was there. And so not only was I close there, I, I reported to them. Um, and so, yeah, we were deeply embedded. And, and this was this was um, something that evolved as I got to Genentech and has been evolving at Roche and Genentech since then, is this deeper connection between R&D and business development. And I, in, in some ways, I was just doing what, I was, what was familiar to me because in a small company like Cytokinetics, where I'd come from, of course, that was the case, right? If you have only two or 300 employees in a company, then the business development people are hanging out in the labs and talking to the clinicians yep. because that's what you do. It's a small company. Everyone knows one another. And it struck me that that should also occur even when the company was larger. Um, and I that idea, which had also been uh, created before I got there at Genentech about where they wanted to go, we, we had a meeting of the minds that worked perfectly. And it's, as I said, it's been that way ever since. And okay. So you're, you're, you know, you're on the same page, like philosophically, scientifically with R and D and that's good. But let's come back to that earlier question about um, people, uh, the, the percentage of the pipeline um, that was coming from outside. Cause my perception from the outside was that, you know, there was a lot of homegrown stuff in that pipeline and um, not a lot coming from the outside. Yes. I mean, if you look at Genentech back in those days and the, the products that everyone remembers, uh, which are still very important products for the healthcare sector, uh, drugs like Rituxan, Avastin, Herceptin, 
these drugs uh, on the whole were homegrown. Rituxan was in license from IDEC uh, early on in Genentech's history. Um, Zolaire, for instance, and Asmo was part of an acquisition of a company called Tanox. So there had been some business development deals that were uh, that Genentech had done right from the beginning. And if you remember, Luke, business development was part of Genentech's way of thinking right from the beginning when they outlicensed recombinant human insulin to Lilly, and that was their first product. So the first product to come out of the Genentech, uh, out of Genentech back in the days, was actually the subject of a business development deal. They then started to develop their own drugs, both proteins early on, such as Pomazyme, Activase, growth hormone. And then as they got into antibodies, uh, which is something they excelled at, um, the majority of the work was done internally. We outlicensed some of those antibodies and we in-licensed a few, the big one there being Rituxan. Um, but as, it, as, 2000, as Genentech matured through the two, late, 2000, uh, late 2000s and early 2010s, it became clear that there were also attractive molecules that we could get from the outside. And that's really where things started to blend more with a combination of both internal and external innovation. But I will say that the majority of the programs that we in license right now on the product side, we do so very early on in their development. It's, it's rare, not, not, not absent, but rare that we will bring in a late stage molecule or a molecule that's close to being on the market. Um, most of the stuff we bring in is in preclinical, is preclinical or in the very early phases of clinical well, the, development. The prices are a, a lot higher at the late stage these days. There aren't that many of them and the prices are high when they are. And even the prices are pretty high for preclinical because we're, we're in a completely different market. I mean, when you started, this was a buyer's market. As you said, as you kind of alluded to, there was no real IPO market to speak of. Uh, successful companies like Plexicon being one in the Bay Area, they came up with yeah. Zelboraf. And I mean, they really couldn't even do an IPO. <laughs> they yeah. kind of had to like get acquired by somebody to, to get a return. And, you know, I mean, you being on this side of the table, I mean, you're well aware of the bargaining dynamics. I mean, can you just like take us back a little to, to those days and what that was like to kind of, you know, be the, the city on the hill that everybody wants to partner with and you got a, a hundred desperate innovators looking for somebody to buy them and it's like you and maybe three other people, maybe? Yeah, so there are a couple of things. Firstly, there are cycles of capital inflows, as we talked about earlier, that dramatically affect the valuations of biotech companies and the kinds of terms that are appropriate for them to negotiate a deal with, whether it be an acquisition or a collaboration. When capital flows out of the biotech sector, um, then partnering becomes one of the ways in which capital can flow into, non-dilutive capital in this case, can flow into a biotech company to allow them to innovate. Um, and if, if there is a weak capital market, both privately and publicly, then partners kind of loom large in their importance to, to, to biotech companies. Um, in the situation we're in now and have been in for the last few years where there is uh, an abundance of capital, valuations go up. Um, but surprisingly, surprisingly, and this, this struck me in the, in the mid part of the uh, last decade, um, the amount of partnering didn't go down. What happened was that companies started partnering for other reasons. They didn't partner as much for capital but partnered for operational strength. They wanted companies to join them in, uh, in actually operationally in developing a molecule or join them in commercializing a molecule. So we started to see the deals not only um, change in terms of value, but also change in terms of the nature of the deal so that it wasn't simply a, a naked in-license where Genentech or Roche would take the molecule and do everything became more collaborative in both the research development and in some cases, even the commercial operations. And that was because these companies, regardless of how much capital they had, knew that they didn't have the operational bandwidth to fully bring a product to the patients that needed it. And they need a pharma partner to do that. And that's the situation that we're often in these days in the area of capital abundance. It sounds like you're describing almost like a, sell, a sales pitch for why partner with Genentech. I mean, because, well, we've got all this operational and scientific expertise, uh, you know, not just capital. I mean, there, there's that, but, um, you know, we're going to be the ones to help go, you get through with that gauntlet of phase two and three and turn this into a real product. 
we like to think we like to think of our business model as evolving into what we've called a fenestrated business model, where whereby imagine that instead of the pharma companies being a uh, a castle with a moat around it, where everything went on inside the castle, and then you'd go sell the product. That literally was the way things were decades ago. To one now, where these wide open windows, where products and capital and even talent can flow in a very frictionless way through the open window. So the the, the nature of the relationship with the biotech company is deeper. The the, the flows of products, capital, and talent is richer, uh, and this allows a as, as not only a synchronization, but a connection between all aspects of the innovative cycle in a more effective way than if we were simply a castle with a moat around it and occasionally would open a drawbridge to bring in a product and then close the drawbridge again while we develop it. It's really involved in something much more interesting and I would say also much more effective. Now you merged. You mentioned this earlier, the GRED with uh, the Roche um R&D and business functioning, uh, business development under now, I guess you call it Roche partnering. Um, why did you do that? And what kind of changes had to occur to, to get this thing to operate um, as a seamless whole? Well, this was a decision that was made by, uh, by Severin Schwann, the CEO and the, uh, and the corporate executive committee, that uh, there would be benefits of having one global group um, rather than having two separate groups. Um, there, uh, it would allow a single point of contact within the organization. And uh, at that point in the evolution of the uh, post-acquisition of Genentech, we could start to see that there was more interaction between the scientists and the clinicians uh, in Basel and those in South San Francisco. Initially, there wasn't that much. I mean, initially, you have to remember, Genentech was an independent, although majority owned by Roche, was an independent company with minority shareholders. It had a stock that floated. Uh, and it had a you know a separate entity uh, legally. Um, after 2009, it was fully owned by Roche. And initially, however, you know, things some things take longer to change. Uh, so initially, the scientists and the clinicians and the people at Genentech saw themselves as quite separate from the uh, from the from the mothership, if you want, in Basel. And over time, they started to realize the advantages of interacting more fluidly with one another. One effect of that of that fact and the increased interaction was that we were, there were more times when we would be going together, uh, the Roche partnering group and the Genentech partnering group and trying to think about how we could work together until finally became evident that what we really needed to do was create one group uh, and, and truly admix the business development professionals in California with those in Basel and allow um, both geographic uh, and uh, fluidity so that we could move back and forth between these two great research centers for us and also generate one voice to the outside world. Um, and one other aspect of this that's been a true advantage is that we can now drive deals that go across all of R&D at Roche. Not only, so you'll have a biotech company working with scientists both in Switzerland and in the United States. And these are both very powerful R&D centers. And as I'm sure you know, Luke, Roche spends more on R&D than any other pharmaceutical company, over $12 billion in 2020. Um, this is a ton of research and science going on. And it's so wonderful to see the interactions between these broad scientific groups grow in their interactions. Again, I, I come back to it as a sort of an internal form of what we're seeing with the outside world. The more interaction there is, the more people from different uh, different ways of looking at business and at science interact with one another, in my opinion at least, the better the outcome. If you like this show, subscribe to Timmerman Report. Thanks so much. TimmermanReport.com And there is another way to support quality independent biotech journalism. You could sponsor this podcast. If you are at a company with its own podcast, Sponsoring the long run is an excellent way to let potential listeners find out about your show. This podcast has more than 5,000 listeners every other week. It has an avid fan following. Ask my business rep, Stephanie Barnes, for more information about becoming a sponsor. Her contact information is on TimmermanReport.com. You know, it sounds like this took a long time. 
Um, cultures don't just change with the flick of a switch, despite, you know, maybe what company leaders might want it to. Um, you know, the cultural, like you could indulge in some stereotypes, I suppose, about, you know, the freewheeling Californians and the more buttoned up Swiss and, you know, the time zone differences. I don't know. I get press releases from Roche at like 10 o'clock at night on Sunday. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's a long flight. And, you know, and then there's personality conflicts within organizations. But it sounds like maybe you guys just like met, like, I don't know, at ASCO or ESMO or like you're, you're on the same kind of well-worn paths and like find out over time that actually, you know, we're, we're kind of rowing in the same direction. Why don't we just like work together for real? For sure. Um, the other thing I would say is that the stereotypes of freewheeling California culture versus kind of buttoned up uh, Swiss pharmaceutical culture, um, which is frankly what I expected, turns out not to be true. When you really get to know the people and you really uh, sit in meetings or in the or go to the labs. It turns out that there's some very creative, nimble, freewheeling people in Switzerland, and there's some button-up people in California. Um, that the stereotypes that used to define uh, the both the phar- the difference between the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry, and for companies like ours between a California-based R&D group and a European-based R&D group, turn out just not to be true. They fall apart. And then you end up with something much more interesting in the aggregate. I think sometimes people focus on these sorts of tensions, and and I, I think they can be real and meaningful in some cases. But maybe an even bigger one is like how an organization itself evolves over time. I, I'm thinking about like you know classic Clay Christensen innovators dilemma type stuff. Like if you're the company that gave the world Herceptin and Rituxan and Avastin, you're, you're the world's best antibody company. Right. I mean, pretty soon it's the classic, you know, every hammer looks every <laughs> is looking for a nail kind of thing. And, and and then you start thinking about defending existing franchises like, well, let's make a we made an antibody to HER2. Let's make an antibody drug conjugate to HER2 and an antibody drug conjugate to CD20. You, you get the idea. Um, and, and maybe, you know, you you leave yourself vulnerable to um, these upstarts that are, you know, coming at problems from a completely different angle and like, wow, have a potential to like really change the game. Um, how do you, how do you keep, how do you make your organization when it's big and successful, like still nimble and open to that newness? This is a great question. And I think every successful company comes into it. I, and I'm not sure that the Christians had even anticipated the, the concept of innovators dilemma extending into R&D the way it does, but it's actually a very good analogy. Um, as you get very good at something, uh, you tend to, there, there's, a, there's a potential at least for an intellectual rut to happen whereby everything has to go down that path. One of the great things about partnering and about having a partnering group that is so embedded in R&D is we're constantly breaking down the barriers of that rut and saying, you don't have to do it the way we did it before. In fact, if you, as we were saying earlier, if you do it only the way you did it before, eventually you will be less important. Um, I've often said that if Genentech and Roche only discover and develop monoclonal antibodies in small molecules, within a number of decades, we will be an unimportant company. If, on the other hand, we innovate and start to think about RNA-binding small molecules or uh, by or, or by specific antibodies, cell therapy, gene therapy, maybe even bacterial therapies, but that is going to be the way to continue to be important. There's a constant requirement to change in order to access the kinds of pioneering medicines that the world's going to see. It's not change for change's sake. It's change because the novel medicine, the novel modality will be more effective than the old modalities. That's what's got to drive it. You know, you made a comment I saw on one of the company websites that we don't know what the medicines 10 years from now are going to look like, but I guarantee you they will not be biologics or small molecules. It will be something else. I mean, that really sounds like you're rocking the boat. <laughs> Is that a controversial thing to say internally? Does that upset people? I actually think that it might upset some people, but mostly when I make those comments, and I made that comment with with historical analysis of the of the advent of biologics as therapies, um, uh, disrupting the prevalence of small molecules, which occurred very you know, over a decade basically, um, 
I think most people get excited about it because they, I think at, at their core, truly great scientists are constantly looking for ways to, or hypotheses that they can test more effectively with innovative mechanisms. Um, if small molecules could give us 100% of the innovations in the, in the pharmaceutical world, we'd all be doing small molecules. But we know that active site, Lipinski rule, small molecules that are chemically synthesized target only a handful of the targets, the so-called druggable targets, um, and that there are many targets out there, for instance, that don't have a structural basis for a small molecule to modulate their function. For those, wow, how fantastic if you could find a small molecule that would bind to the RNA and prevent the protein from even being made, or alternatively, would bind to another side on the protein and encourage it to be degraded. So instead of inhibiting a protein, you're actually changing protein levels. I mean, this is a fantastic new way to think about undruggable targets. And we're starting to see this come onto the marketplace and into the pipelines in many companies. You kind of already answered my next question, but it's one that you've posed. And that is that, you know, what should Roche be doing today to build the capabilities so that we're the ones who are leading, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now? I, I think you're getting at some of these different modalities, small molecules for RNA targets and allosteric binders and protein degraders, all these different and the chemistries to allow you to approach different novel targets. For sure. And in fact, the one important thing here from the business perspective, and this goes back to your comment about innovators dilemma, is that not only do we have a, a tendency to go down the path we've been down before, but we also have a tendency to think in a short-term manner. We want to think, what can we bring in now that will give us a, a, a marketed product that will help patients in the shortest possible time frame? And this is driven not only by just human psychology of wanting to see something happen, but it's also driven by the marketplace of having quarterly earnings calls. Now, the one thing that Roche has that is an an advantage over some of the other companies. James, before uh, you go on, I, I have to tell you that that's, that was my initial exposure to Genentech way back when, when it was an independent company, like call, covering earnings with, you know, Art, Sue, and David Ebersman. It's like, how much yeah. was your quarterly sales for Avastin, exactly. Receptin, and, and Rituxin? And like, the, there was so much focus on that. I mean, management had to focus on it. The street did, the media, yep. like a whole lot of focus on that. It kind of drove me nuts, actually, because I would ask my editors, like, can we talk about the stuff they're developing in the lab that's super cool and will change things 10 or 20 years from now? <laughs> so well, anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the, the, you're making a point here about long-term thinking. It's important. Right. And yeah, or what has been called the infinite game. Um, the the, the, the short-term game is not unimportant. It's very important. It's just that if you truly want to build uh, a, a, a really important healthcare company, you have to think in multiple different time frames, and most companies do not think in the longest of time frames. The point I was going to make was that because of the family ownership of Roche, i.e., that the Hoffman family owns a majority of the voting shares, it it, it allows us, in my opinion, to perhaps make some of these long-term uh, investments a little more effectively than if we didn't have that, because. There is an interest by that family ownership for Roche to continue to be the most important healthcare company, not five years from now, but 30 years from now. Okay, so, so what, are, what are some of these areas of science really excite you long term? I mean, you mentioned a couple. I think gene therapy is another. Yeah, so gene therapy for me, and, I, and I've, I've, I've given talks about this, um, and the people at Spark have heard me talk about this as well. This was a company we acquired. As, as you know, a year ago, um, gene therapy, in my opinion, will become, in the long run, one of the major mainstays of treating disease. And it will do so because of the fundamental nature of what it's doing. It's actually going in and repairing genetic causes. I like to think of it in the deep future as being genetic surgery. Going in, just, we have anatomic surgery right now. You can go in and, and, you know, put in a an open coronary artery where there was one closed before, or you can take out a diseased appendix. That's anatomic surgery. But imagine we could go in effectively and replace bad genes with good genes, uh, and we could do so in a way that is 
that is a one-time surgery, like surgery is, and that would be it for the patient. I mean, the the economics, the delivery, the the biological attraction to that is extremely attractive. Now, we're not there yet. We don't know how to turn genes off if we put them into a patient. Um, we're not even sure how well we can control for some of the viral mechanisms, integration sites for gene therapy. And so often the gene therapy is episomal and doesn't integrate into the genome. We're still in baby steps for true uh, going in and genetically engineering uh, a patient's cells to replace a bad gene with a good one. But this is all just a matter of time and industry. Once you can imagine it, it can happen. And so the one area that I'm most excited about is gene therapy in all of its forms. Now, when you say all of its forms, I, I didn't actually hear you mention delivery. <laughs> the viral vector, you're, you're talking about viral vector gene therapy. And then that's your well, definition? Or are there some other forms like you want to expand it to include CRISPR or mRNA? Of, it includes all of those. It includes modifying cells ex vivo. It includes CRISPR and going in and actually editing the genome. It includes the current viral vectors that we use. I, we're just at the beginning of gene therapy. It feels like, for me at least, it feels like the beginning of protein therapies back in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Back then, no one knew that a protein was going to be a therapeutic. In fact, many people, and for, for the view at the time, rightly so, thought the proteins would not make good therapeutics. They would get proteolized quickly in the blood. Uh, how could you deliver them? How could you deliver enough of them? Um, antibodies. No, at, at the time, very few people thought antibodies were going to make reasonable therapies. They were going to generate anti-idiotype antibodies and get rid of the drug you had, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we view proteins and biologics and antibodies as standard therapy. I believe we're going to view genetic surgery, genetic engineering, and gene therapy as standard therapy 30 or 40 years from now. And there's a lot of technology development that, that has to happen to make it effective and safe between now and then. But Boy, if you really want to become an important healthcare company 30 or 40 years from now, start putting those foundational building blocks in place today. So this long-term thinking, I mean, I, I, I can see if we just look at Spark, uh, what was the price on that? Something like $6 billion? Five, 5.1, yes. 5.1, okay. Yeah. But, you know, that's a product that was the first of its kind, viral vector gene therapy approved for this rare genetic uh, eye disease, cause of blindness, uh, has not, you know, generate a lot of sales. I mean, if you're, you're looking at quarterly earnings, uh, you know, and trying to justify a $5 billion acquisition, it's not there. Uh, exactly. But so what, what, what's the strategic rationale long-term for this? Well, you've, you've, uh, you've answered your question. So if you view uh, collaborations and business development deals with a time frame of uh, a commercial time frame of what's on the market now or what will be on the market in the next one to two years, then Spark fundamentally became an acquisition for Luxterna, and in fact became an acquisition for the U.S. rights to Luxterna because they had outlicensed the rest of world rights. Now, Luxterna, as you point out, is a small, very innovative, and very effective gene therapy for RPE65 deficiency. It's very effective, but it's a small market. Um, so, you know, if, if you're trying to imagine why did we buy the company, we didn't buy it solely for Luxterna. We ended up buying it because of Luxterna, because they were the first company to actually do a gene therapy, uh, and because they had fantastic research and development capabilities, um, because we believe that they will build great therapies for the distant future, not necessarily the next two to three years. And that kind of time frame that we don't often talk about this in business circles or in business development, about the ability to do business development with different timeframes of the output and the benefit of your investment. And it really only works if you allow yourself the luxury, as, as we have, to make those investments, because you can't force them to speed up. You can't force innovation to happen too quickly. It takes time, and it takes industry, uh, and it takes a lot of failure to get there. The same thing was true for antibodies. Um, but there's one thing that Genentech and Roche know is that if you put the investment in there, as Genentech did in the early days, eventually you end up with that pipeline that you uh, interacted with the analysts on of Rituxan, Herceptin, and uh, and uh, and um, Avastin. Um, now, that wouldn't have happened if we tried to do that in a year. It took years to do that. So it's a long-term investment. And I, I, I would imagine, I mean, some things... You, 
Do you expect some technical breakthroughs to come or that have to come for gene therapies or gene genetic surgeries, as you say, to become like really widespread accessible? Because at, you know, a million dollars a shot, I mean, this is going to be pretty hard to, to scale, right? Do, do you anticipate something coming along to really bring down that cost and, and improve the, the access? Well, and you should talk to the gene therapy experts about the details of this, but you've hit a couple of key elements. One is um, the, the nature of the therapy itself uh, needs to evolve in, in a sense of understanding uh, tissue tropism, for instance, for whatever delivery vehicle you're using, whether it's a virus or other mechanisms. Um, how do you deal with the immunity that can happen in patients get, that could get possibly repeat dosed, dosed with an AV vector, for instance? Um, uh, how do you control the expression of the transgene once it's in the body? Um, and as you pointed out, then the other thing is how do we get cost of goods down to a reasonable mecha, to a reasonable level? How can we get better at manufacturing the gene therapy? So as I said, there are a lot of things that need to happen for this to mature as an important part of healthcare. I just have no doubt it's going to happen. Yep. Um, you mentioned some areas you're excited about. What are some areas that you think are, uh, you know, overhyped or over, overpitched? Well, I think almost any area where you start to see um, where you start to see valuations of biotech companies exceed the true value that those biotech companies have are areas to be concerned about. And right now, we're going through that that period in cell therapies. There's a lot of innovation in cell therapy to get beyond the initial uh, successes that have happened with things like leukemias, um, but we really haven't cracked the technological challenge of finding a cell therapy that is deeply effective against solid tumors, for instance, in oncology. Many of the companies that are in this space now are extremely highly valued. And it's wonderful for them in a sense that they now have capital for which they can develop this technology. From my perspective as a partner, it's a challenge because the, uh, the risk of the programs are now high relative to the valuation of the company. And developing a proper design deal, whether it be an acquisition or a collaboration for these types of things can be more challenging. Um, there, the areas that are challenging for us right now are also some of the areas of great unmet need. I, you didn't mention this, but I trained as a neurologist before getting into biotech, uh, and there's nothing that many of us would love more than to see an effective therapy for neurodegenerative diseases. And yet, as you know, we, it's just been a, a series of of, of clinical failures after clinical failure. So that's an area right now that I'm cautious about, but hoping that there is something that comes comes forth in that area. I, I, my personal view is that the science is still relatively immature given the complexity of these diseases for generating therapies in the near term that are gonna be truly transformative for those diseases. You kind of alluded to this earlier, James, but you know how the market has shifted to becoming like a more like a seller's market, where the the little innovator with something really cool that's preclinical or maybe some phase one data um, really holds some pretty powerful cards now. Well, they can go public as an IPO or they can do a SPAC. There's lots of money out there for those. Um, there's lots of different partners that are trying to fill up their pipelines. Um, how does this? How has the power dynamic shifted? in your view, the last, say, three or four years? There's, uh, you've hit on a couple of, of, of important points. The power dynamic shifts when the capital shifts. So the rotation of capital into the biotech sector right now has been truly transformative for healthcare. It's been fantastic. I mean, none of us would want anything less. The more, the more capital there is in the sector, the more innovation there will be. The more innovation there is, the better the products will be. Um, and the the challenge of a pharmaceutical company like ours is to have the right mix and blend and mixture of internal programs that we develop over time, over in some cases a long period of time, and the use of partnerships in order to access this external innovation in a way that is also attractive to the biotech company. Now, when the power dynamic shifts because of capital, that latter piece becomes more challenging. It, it it doesn't mean that we shouldn't stop doing deals, but it, but it means that we should look at deals for those programs and those technologies that are really going to, uh, in our opinion, be important. Now, the beauty is we can think about those importances over long, over long periods of time. For instance, we did a deal in April of last year 
with a wonderful, very young company called Arrakis Therapeutics. Uh, and this is for developing RNA-targeted small molecules. Um, it's a very early stage company, but one with tremendous science. And um, the... Uh, yeah, Mike Gilman and large... Jennifer Petter are former guests on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I did a podcast with Mike last year on BioCentury. And, um, and, and Mike and I, you know, we talked about how can we truly do something together that's great for Roche and great for... Um, and great for Arrakis as well. And so the scientists in Basel and, and Mike's scientists and the business development people got together and said, you know, let's do something large where there was hundreds of millions of dollars up front uh, in order to allow, and this was non-dilutive capital, Luke, in order to allow Mike and his team to focus then on science. And that allows us to capture a fair amount of that innovation into Roche while also leaving a fair amount for them with their platform to develop themselves. And these kinds of long-term deals, I think are extremely attractive, especially in an environment where the late stage deals tend to be quite uh, expensive. Large upfront cash that helps build up your partner and, and keep them close to you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Rather than trying to just you know, get the best terms you possibly can, right? Absolutely. And the other thing, uh, and I recognize this from having been in Mike's shoes, actually, for half of my career as a CEO of both a private and publicly traded biotech company, is that if you if you bring in a large amount of, of non-dilutive capital in a deal, such as the one we did with Arrakis, and we did another one with another company, uh, Vividian, uh, also a company with our Roche scientists in Basel, um, the it, it, it allows them to now focus the company's activity on the technology development. And what many pharma people don't realize is that when when small biotech companies go fundraising, it's not just the CFO that goes out and does that. The whole company goes fundraising and it, 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 the investors want to see, they want to talk to the scientists, they want to talk to the CEO. It, it, it takes it takes a tremendous amount of effort to fundraise. It's really interesting. Uh, for a, so yeah. Mike, and, Mike, and, Mike and Jennifer in this case, they don't need to run up a million freaking flyer miles like in, in the previous world raising money. They can focus on, you know, hitting their objectives scientifically, technologically, hiring people, everything they got to do to run the business. That's correct. And that, that was part of the part of the attractiveness for them on doing these large early stage deals, something that I, I find just an extremely attractive way. If you have the patience and the time element uh, focus to do these deals. These can be extremely attractive. Now, we do those kinds of deals, but we also do some of the more late-stage deals. We did a deal with Sarepta uh, last year. We did one with Atea, Regeneron. Um, we did a deal with Blueprint Medicines for a molecule that launched within months of us doing the deal. So we do a mixture, Luke, of deals that are both early and late. Uh, and the, the kind of approach, both in terms of deal design and deal economics you take, is different between those two from different flavors. I saw that on your site that you say you did 107 agreements to acquire, license, or collaborate with companies uh, in, and academics in 2018 alone. Is that one of your key metrics of success? Um, and, and, and if so, um, why? It, it, it's a metric that's easy to measure, and so some people will use it. We, we don't usually follow numbers as much as we follow impact. And so... The more important thing for me is whether the deals that we've done now with deep uh, collaboration and effort by the internal R&D people, manufacturing people, and eventually commercial people at Roche and Genentech has actually generated a pioneering medicine. I mean, there's no success for us if we just do a deal. There's no success if we enter development. The success is when we exit development and put a market into the real world, and put a drug into the real world. That is a burden that we have, at, uh, and, and every, every successful pharmaceutical company has. They have to think in terms of success being defined almost solely by the clinical impact and by the healthcare impact of their products. So is this kind of like being an R&D leader, like a good BD leader, you can't really fairly grade his or her performance until maybe 10 years after you've left the job. Yeah, it, it's true. And I think one of the reasons why I like the job I'm in and, and, and the time frame of being there for so long is you start to get a sense about whether the work you did 10 years ago was actually helpful or not. And 
uh, it's, it's a very long-term industry. Now it's getting shorter and I hope it gets a lot shorter. Um, we're developing more quickly than we were 10 years ago. Um, but there still is a requirement to have very careful business, to very careful drug development occur on the heels of very careful drug discovery. And that just takes time. What are one or two things that really worry you about the future sustainability of the industry? You know, on my last episode, I asked Bob Nelson something about this, and he mentioned that the uh, building up the executive talent pool, the, the people who can run uh, with all of these cool science and technology projects. I, I, I've written some, and you've probably seen about, you know, building up the younger generation for the workforce and for manufacturing jobs. Um, I don't know. What, what are things on your radar that, that you want to see the industry do more of or do a better job at? I'm actually... Um, I'm actually not worried about the people aspect. When I look at the the uh, the entry level and people that are just starting their career in science, in biotech companies, or at Roche or Genentech, or in business development, or in manufacturing, all I see are tremendously bright and innovative people from all over the world. Um, and I think we also have to appreciate that is tr- it is truly a global industry right now. We have tr- we have great innovations occurring in Europe. You saw this with coronavirus, with the vaccine coming from BioNTech. Um, we have great innovations that are happening in America, and we will see, without a doubt, tremendous innovations coming out of Asia and out of China over time as their healthcare market, as their in biotech market and healthcare infrastructure uh, matures. Um, so I'm not worried about the people. What I'm, what what I worry about, I guess, is more of a near term. By the way, the, the longer your time frame, the more optimistic I become, right? I mean, I think if, if I think put a 40-year time frame on it, I'm very optimistic. In the near term, I the, the worry that I have is that people will start to um, try to generate near-term benefit, and, and in the, some of the biotech companies' cases, near-term financial benefit, potentially at the expense of long-term technological benefit. We have to keep our eye fully on the long-term prize of truly developing an innovative medicine that really helps patients. Anything less than that is a slight waste of time in my mind. And when so much capital flowing around, there's a risk that people will start to get enamored with capital and and as a result, will take their eyes off that long-term scientific and technological goal. Uh, and you can get the next generation of Elizabeth Holmeses out there and then people get scared about the whole industry. Well, and it, and I still think it's incredibly uncommon in our industry. I think the vast majority of the people I interact with are are truly focused on the science. And the thing that keeps them in this industry is actually cool, innovative science. And I mean, if you talk to people in, in the vast majority of biotech companies, what gets them coming to work is the fact that they could discover something that no one else has discovered and that that discovery could lead to a dramatically important medicine. I mean, I, I that's what gets me optimistic. I, I'm not in any way uh, cynical about this industry. I believe that it has ju- it's just getting started in what it can do. Last thing I want to ask you, James, because I know that you're, um, you read widely. Uh, and you mentioned uh, before we came on, that you had me over to speak about my hood book to your um, your team uh, shortly after it came out. Uh, and you had a Caltech connection back to, you know, Hood and his glory days. So I'm curious, like, um, what, what kind of books have you read lately that um, have sparked some, some new or creative thoughts? Yeah, I have, um, I have pretty wide uh, reading interests. And more recently, um, I've been reading about uh, books about American history and about uh, race relations in America in order to put a historical context on what I think many of us in America actually experienced over the last uh, year or so. There's some wonderful books. Jill Lepore's book, These Truths, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, are, are just wonderful books to, to give you a historical foundation upon which to generate some of your own thinking about these areas. But I will leave you with one thing, Luke, and that is the the beauty about reading and the beauty about thinking is that if you give yourself time to read widely and then give yourself time to think widely, you will you'll come up with your own way of viewing the world. If you don't allow yourself to do that, if you are 
as Stephen Covey would say, stuck in the thick of thin things. If you're stuck just on call after call after call, you know, 12, 12 hours a day, five, six days a week, and you don't give yourself the luxury of thought and luxury of reading in order to expand your thought, then you are destined simply to parrot what someone else has said. And I think as my advice to people who want to really grow in leadership roles is to ensure they have time for solitude and ensure they have time for reading in order they can develop their own view of the world and how it should go. That's such a great piece of advice. Um, people should guard their time and their attention. It's valuable. and Extremely we, valuable. And we have a, a lot of control over it if we maintain discipline over it. James Savory, thanks so much for speaking with me today on The Long Run. My pleasure, Luke. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.